Morning, church. How are you? Good. 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 Pastor Luke has, um, well, if you're, if you're uh, new here or a visitor, uh, my name is Cameron. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we have another pastor, Pastor Luke, who is on uh, vacation this week. Um, and uh, it's, good, it's good for your pastors to get away and get refreshed and um, spend some time resting. So please pray for us as we try to do that regularly. Um, uh, like Ellen shared with you, some announcements that's going on this week. I just want to like piggyback on something that she said about um, the front door class. We offer core classes here uh, at Conduit, and essentially what those what those core classes are 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 just opportunities one for you to gain a better sense of connection and identity with uh, the church here at Conduit, and that's primarily what this class that she was talking about, which we call front door. It's kind of like walking through the front door of the church, trying to trying to learn or get acclimated to everything that um, goes on here, and maybe why we do the things that we do, or why we talk about the things that we talk about, or who we are and who um, who we believe God has called us to be. Um, in the world and in the community, um, and so, um, like like she was encouraging you to sign up for that if you've never been a part of that class, or if you're if you're new to conduit and want to learn more about it, or if you're old to conduit and just want to sit through the class again to kind of like uh, refresh on all of that information, we would love to be able to have you. And the primary way way to sign up, as as Ellen mentioned, is um, through our app, and uh, you can do that um, at your leisure. Um, so la- last week obviously was, was, is Easter Sunday, was Easter Sunday, and, um, it's always, uh, it, in all of life, not just, not just, uh, here in church, but in all of life, there seems to be this, this question or this dichotomy, almost like this looming disappointment that happens when you have what you might call, like, a mountaintop or high, high altitude experience, right? And and that is like, well, what what comes next? What is next after you're at the top, right? And for for Christians, um, Easter is our like the the apex of the apex of belief. It's the apex of practice. It's the apex of our year, and it, it, it is actually the apex of our lives, right? What happened on Easter Sunday, what we celebrate, how we express our faith and belief in, that, um, in what Jesus has done. So then the question comes, like, okay, well, what now? Like, how do you follow that up? How do you follow up um, on Easter Sunday? And I, I, shared, uh, I shared last week, and I shared both in, at the Good Friday service and uh, in the Sunday service about, like, sometimes the uh, sense of pressure that there is to, um, as, a, as a preacher to, to, develop, to develop content, right, that is engaging and inspiring and encouraging and faithful to the Word, and that is something that, like, the people that I'm pastoring has never have never heard before, right? Or that maintains the spiritual momentum of or trajectory of what we talked about last week. And 
and what I've been learning over, um, over the years um, is that that's not, that's not what God requires of me, right? And that's not what God requires of us as a, um, as a family or as a community is to ensure that um, every bit of information is new and fresh and inspiring and engaging and encouraging. Uh, because like I said last, last week, um, some, uh, sometimes um, the old truth is um, the only truth, right? And sometimes the, I guess you could say, the old word is the good word. Um, and so there is this, there is this, um, there is like kind of every, if you didn't know this, like every Sunday in the, in the year is labeled in the like liturgical church calendar. If you've you ever gone to a denominational church, or if you've gone to, you have any um, experience in Catholicism or anything like that, you'll often you'll you'll know that this is the case. You know, like it's the first Sunday after Easter, or it's the third Sunday of Pentecost, or um, then you'll have Palm Sunday. You'll have like every Sunday is named, okay, liturgically speaking, and. And do you know what today is named in that church calendar? The, the week after Easter. Do you know what today is named? Today is Doubting Thomas Sunday. Okay? It's like, so like, talk about being on like a mountaintop on Easter and then the very next week having it be like Doubting Thomas Sunday. Right? Like if there was any guy in the history of, of of the Christian church that I think got a really bad rap, I'm gonna say if it's not Jesus, right? He got a he got a bad rap, right? Then it's then it's Thomas, okay? Uh, and we're gonna talk a little bit about that. Every single one of the Gospels, and the Gospels are these books. Um, in the beginning of your New Testament, and there are four of them. We talk about this a lot. There are four Gospels, and they're each written by a different person. And so they're each written by, from like a different perspective, right? Like if you and I, if four of us went out to see a movie, okay? And then a couple days later, we were to ask to write down all of the characters in the movie, all of the important details in the movie, all of the conversations in the movie, the general plot of the movie. We would all have, basically, you would expect the same type of flow, right? The same general details. But there would be things that you noticed that I didn't notice. There would be things that caught your eye that didn't catch my eye. There would be things that you thought were important that I was like, oh yeah, it's part of the story, but not as important. And that's exactly what we have in the four Gospels. And that's exactly why they read kind of similar, but they also read kind of different. Because, because these four guys are, are approaching the story of Jesus from just slightly different angles, right? But what is really interesting is when you compare and contrast the four Gospels, what are the stories that are in each one of them? What are the details that are in each one of them? What are the things that those four writers thought so incredibly important that they must include, right? One of the things that we see in all of the Gospels is that we see some form of 
um, Jesus appearing to his disciples after his resurrection. It was not just like, well, the tomb was empty and they never saw him again. Right? In each of the Gospels, there is a, at least one, at least one instance where Jesus appeared to his disciples, appeared to his followers, and had some really specific things to say to them. Now, Thomas is one of those examples, right? In the Gospel of John, for instance, there's a, there's a real, um, real significant portion of text that's dedicated to Thomas. And Thomas is like, the, the other disciples are like, we have seen the Lord, and he is, he is not in the grave anymore, and what does Thomas say, right? Well, I'm not, not going to believe until I put my fingers in the wound in his side, and I see the nail holes in his feet and in his hands. I'm not going to believe that. And I mean, honestly, and I've always said this, like, I think Thomas gets a bad rap because we call him Doubting Thomas, right? We don't call him faithful for the last three years, Thomas, and then doubting in the one moment, right? And we certainly don't have any negative monikers for the other, ele- the, the, the other ten disciples who abandoned him in the moment and Judas who betrayed him unto death, right? But, but Thomas wasn't alone in his doubt. Thomas wasn't alone in his disbelief at what, was ha- what happened to Jesus. And we know that he wasn't alone because the other disciples, they weren't out in the world proclaiming that Jesus has, resur- has resurrected from the dead, were they? No, it says that they were hiding in the upper room out of fear of the Jews. They were afraid. We're next. They, they killed Jesus. Obviously, we're we're next. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was like bosom buddies with a guy that was just resurrected from the dead, right, and had promised that he was going to do that, it wouldn't be something that I would be holding inside or be afraid to talk about, right? It'd be the message on my lips to every single person who could possibly be with an earshot. But it shows that they were essentially fully convinced that Jesus wasn't actually alive, that either his body had been stolen or that something else had happened entirely. They were experiencing and expressing doubt also, just in a much different form than Thomas. Thomas was brave enough in that moment to say, yeah, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And until I see it, I'm not going to believe it. I think, I think, 21st century Christianity can learn a lot from Thomas's honesty. Um, because, uh, because a lot of times what I find is that we take the things in our faith that are difficult for us to believe or that we're struggling with, right? Or that life circumstances are such that we're having a hard time reconciling what we believe about Jesus and our life circumstances and putting them together, Right? But what do we do? We paste on a smiley face, right? And, and, and we shove down any sense of curiosity about the nature and character of God 
or what Jesus is doing in my heart and in my life or what Jesus wants me to do in this relationship or in that situation. And we just, and we just paste it on with this, well, I guess that's just the way it is. It'll be okay. And will it be okay? Yes, of course it will be okay because Jesus continues to be good even in the midst of our difficult circumstances and in our doubts. But I believe truly to the center of my being that there is a tremendous way that God works in your life and in your faith when you are honest with the things that you're struggling with to him. Lord, I am having a hard time believing this. And just like, just like the man who's, who Jesus healed in the Gospel of John, right? Jesus says to him, um, do you believe? Do you believe that I can, essentially, that you will be healed, that I can heal you? And what does he say? I do believe, Jesus. But man, you're going to have to help me with my unbelief. There was this like, I do believe, Jesus. I really do. But man, I got a whole lot of disbelief and unbelief, and I need you to help me with that. Right? And that's not, that's not a wrong thing to do. That's not a bad thing to say. That's not an unfaithful position to hold. Okay? And we're going to see that this morning. Um, we're going to be primarily in Luke's gospel this morning. Um, Luke chapter 24. And um, this is all the Luke chapter 24 is the last chapter of the gospel of Luke. And um, the whole thing is about the resurrection. Okay, what happened at the day of the resurrection? And then what happened immediately following the resurrection as well? Now, verses 13 through 35 are kind of one of the first appearances of Jesus to the disciples, right? And they're, they, they, they were unable to see him, see him for who he actually was. Initially, it's this, call this the, the road to Emmaus or the walk to Emmaus, right? But then we're, we're going we're gonna to focus a little bit on Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 36. While they, the disciples, were still talking about this, meaning his previous appearance, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. As we have often talked before, to be a fly on the wall, right, of a locked room with a bunch of men who thought that Jesus was dead and they were running afraid for their lives from the Jews and then have suddenly Jesus appear in the room saying, hey, peace be with you. Or like, hey, don't worry. You know, no, no reason to be alarmed. All right. I don't know about the disciples, but I'm going to be alarmed in a situation like that. I'm going to be alarmed. This doesn't normally happen, right? This is not a normal thing. It's not an everyday thing for people to come back from the dead or to appear in a room where the door is locked. It doesn't happen. They were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. Stands to reason. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. 
When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened up their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. And he told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in, the name of, in, the, in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. I am going to send you I am going to send you what my father has promised but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Jesus here in like appearing to them and seeing their doubt he invites them he invites his disciples to actually touch and see and experience and believe that what he had promised and what they were seeing was actually happening. He recognized their doubt, right? He recognized their fear. He recognized everything that we would catalog as wrong with their response. And he responded in a way not to beat them up about their disbelief, but to say, what is it that I can do that will inspire faith within you, that will inspire belief within you. And so he does something very interesting here. And the, the thing that he does is he, he asks them if they, have, um, if they have anything to eat. This is all kind of like, this is all kind of like categorized as this kind of logical, apologetic type response of Jesus to say, hey, look, guys, I know that you think that what you're seeing is a ghost, is an apparition, is just some spirit. Tell me this. Can you touch and feel the body of a spirit? Can you touch and feel the physical presence of a ghost? Put your hands here. Touch, feel, see that I am not a ghost. In fact, let me take it a little further. I've been in the tomb for three days. I'm a little hungry. Do you have anything to eat? And, and they're like, yeah, take this fish. And he eats the fish. Why? Think Jesus is really hungry? Well, I mean, maybe. I don't know, right? But what he does here is he says, hey, he essentially says, does a ghost need anything to eat? He took it and he ate it in their presence. What Jesus wanted to show them is that he was very, very much alive. That they were not seeing a ghost. That they were not seeing some spiritual figure before him, before them. That he had a body. That he could eat food. That he was very, very much alive. Now listen, why is this important for you and I? Why? Why is this important? It's really important um, because 
We have in the, in the Christian theological tradition and belief, right? We believe in the resurrection. And we believe that by faith in Jesus Christ, right, we come to know the same resurrection from the dead that Jesus experienced. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, right, that the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies. The same resurrection that Jesus experiences, we experience. But somewhere, right, and at some times, we get, we get, get kind of messed up about what we believe is true about eternal life and about resurrection. And you have all seen it, and you've all experienced it, and you've all heard it. You maybe saw it in Sunday school, or you read a book about it, or something like that, where, where heaven is this very, very spiritual existence, where we're kind of like walking on clouds, and there's no doors in heaven, right? You don't need doors, because you can just walk right through walls, because we're all just like spiritually alive and existing in this, you know, kind of like esoteric state. Well, actually the basis of Christian belief about resurrection is not that we, that our bodies will go into the ground and they will stay there and our spirits, since they're the good part of us, will live on eternally. The basis of resurrection is the same resurrection that Jesus experienced. Is that it's not just a spiritual state, but that our resurrection is a bodily resurrection. That the same resurrection that Jesus experienced, that we experience, that what was dead in our bodies now becomes alive through the Spirit of God. Christian resurrection is a bodily resurrection. It is not some disembodied spiritual state that is separate from physical existence. It's not some, we are not just eternally some ghostly figure or spirit, but life has been returned to what has previously been dead, our bodies. Okay? Because... Because what was shown in the resurrection, right, is not that God in Jesus Christ just kind of did like a workaround in the pow- with the power of death, right? Because what does resurrection show? What does a bodily resurrection show? A bodily resurrection shows that death has been defeated, right? That death has lost, that God has the victory, right? That, that the grave cannot hold you. So if our eternal existence was just spiritual or disembodied, it would kind of be a sly way of God getting around the whole, yeah, but I kind of beat death by just making your spirit exist forever, but your body is still dead. But that's not the point, right? The point of the resurrection is God's victory over the penalty of our sin, which has always been death. And so, and so in order for that, in order for that to remain true, 
it, our resurrection is not just God's spiritual workaround over the power of death. It's the complete abolishment of everything that death was. The finality of our bodies in the grave. And now, and now we are what was declared dead, what was laid in the tomb, is now alive. And you can feel it, right? You can touch it. And you can eat food. And you can show that, that death has lost the war. In fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul, right? Who, like we talked about the Gospels, the first four books of the Bible, or of the New Testament. Roughly two-thirds of the New Testament, like lots of the rest of the New Testament, was written by the Apostle Paul. Most of them were written as letters. Letters to different churches, for instance. Letter to the church in Rome. Letters to the church in Corinth. Letters to the church in Ephesus and Philippi and Galatia and Colossae. Letters to, his, um, to the guy he was mentoring, Timothy, right? Letters to type, like, letters, Okay? And this was one of Paul's, the, like the resurrection was one of Paul's, like the thing that he was just like not getting off of. He was going to make sure that Christians far and wide understood the centrality of the resurrection to their faith in Jesus. In the 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul kind of goes on this all-out assault. Maybe that's the wrong word, Right? all out like um, diatribe on the resurrection. And one of the things that he says is this, or we're going we're gonna to look at this as kind of a, um, a text by which to learn on the resurrection. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about what is considered to be the resurrection of the dead. Which is, a, which is a term and an ideal that was, not, that was not always like well understood or believed in Christian faith, right? But if, um, I'm in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. That, that Paul proclaims that the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the pivot point or the linchpin upon all the rest of our faith. Nowhere else in Scripture do we see anything come close to this type of proclamation that, hey, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, everything else you believe is garbage, is meaningless, has no bearing whatsoever, right? It is absolutely vital for, for the resurrection of the dead and specifically Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead to be the center of our Christian belief and faith. And then he goes on. More than that, we are, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. He just continues to say, 
right? And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all people. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Listen, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does he say? What, what does that mean? Right? That the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first fruit, right? What is the first fruit? It's the it's literally the first one. Right? It's the first fruit that you take, right? It's the beginning, right? But Christ has, in, has indeed been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Not who are taking a nap, right? For those who are dead. For those who will be dead in Christ, right? That his resurrection becomes the first in a line of resurrections that are based on our faith in that work. That because Jesus was resurrected, everyone else can be resurrected by faith in him as well. Then he says this in verse 21, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruit, then when he comes, those who belong to him, right? Then the end will come, where he will hand over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, power, and authority. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So look, what Paul, the argument that Paul says here is he says, hey, look, um, through Adam, right? Adam, Adam sinned, right? And through that sin, sin came like as a straight hereditary line through all people, right? As in Adam, all sin. As in Adam, all experience death, right? He was like, that was the dynamic that existed in life. But now the dynamic is this. Because Jesus came in righteousness and holiness and offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross for sin and death, by the righteousness of Jesus, the dynamic has now changed. Now it's Jesus producing holiness unto resurrection can be ours. So we're not, we're not resigned to experiencing death through Adam. Now we are given the opportunity by faith to experience resurrection through Jesus. And then finally he ends with this in verse 42, 1 Corinthians 15. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. Right? So what does Paul do here? Paul solidifies the idea that your body, which we may have long been thought to be in the dead, to be dead and in the grave, and we're just going to live a spiritual eternal existence, right? 
will now be raised in an imperishable state. To be imperishable means to, to never fade away, right? To not spoil, to, to exist forever, to, to never deteriorate. That which was perishable in the life of sin is now imperishable in the life of resurrection. Okay? So it is our, it is the cutest baby I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it's not even fair. What was I saying? Yeah. So our bodies, okay? Our bodies. Our bodies, physical bodies, touch, feel, eat, taste, right? Are raised from the dead. That is a, that is a, that is, I don't even want to say that is a central belief. That is like the central belief about the resurrection of Jesus and it being our resurrection as well. Now, let the cat out of the bag a little bit about what's coming in the fall here is that we have planned a whole kind of um, sermon series on, I guess we roughly call it like the end times. Okay, not not just Revelation, all right, because there is as much, if not more, about what's happening at the end of all time, right, in the rest of the New Testament and even into the Old Testament than there is in Revelation. So it's going to be a broad sweep about the end times, right, and that includes like what happens when Jesus comes back and what happens to me and what happens to you and what happens to those who have died before Jesus comes back and what happens to those who are still alive when Jesus comes back and, and what, is, what is happening there and what is, what is all going on. Um, and some of this stuff we'll be returning to then, okay? Um, so back to, our, back to our passage in Luke. Where, where Jesus is addressing the disbelief of the disciples, right? And he's, um, he's working with them in their disbelief, right? What I, what I think is really important to, to point out or to recognize here is how, is how Jesus, in his interaction with the disciples, um, displays a real gentleness with their disbelief talked a little bit about this at the beginning. That Jesus displays gentleness in the midst of their unbelief. Jesus understood, okay? Jesus understood that sometimes seeing was necessary for people to believe. He he extolled the value of those who would believe without seeing, all right? But he also declared sometimes the necessity of people to see before they believed. For instance, in John chapter 4, verse 48, in John chapter 12, verse 37, he was said, I did this miracle, essentially, so that you would believe, right? That, that he would do things that would inspire belief because he knew that it was necessary for those things to be seen. And what is equally impressive to me about the way in which Jesus responded was that Jesus knew 
of the disciples' betrayal. Jesus knew that the disciples would betray him. Jesus knew that the disciples would abandon him. Jesus knew that the disciples would struggle to express belief in them. And he still appeared to them after his resurrection and offered them his peace. And in every single gospel, Matthew 28, Mark chapter 16, Luke chapter 24, John chapter 20, we see this response of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, all right? But it's a little like window into the, um, the, I guess it's an insecurity of your pastor. There is nothing that makes me more, sometimes just internally, but sometimes externally, upset, angry, annoyed, than when people don't believe in me. Like when they, when they think that I can't do something, or that I won't do something, or that I'm incapable, or when they like treat me like a child, or something like that. It's like, it's something deep within here, right? And so, when someone says I can't do something, and then I go out and do that thing, um, there's this kind of like natural, I don't want to say natural, there's this fleshly desire for me to be like, ah, come over here, let's, let's go look at this thing, right, that you said that I couldn't do, but that I just did, right? Let me rub it in your face a little bit, okay? It's just like, Jesus needs to heal me of that. I understand that, right? And it's funny, but it's true, right? I, I understand. That's not, a, that's not a great quality. Um, and so if I were Jesus, if I were Jesus, when I came walking back into that room, post-resurrection, I'd be like, hey, dudes, what's up? What's up now? Huh? Abandoning me, betraying me? Like, Hiding, like, what gives? Told you I was going to do it. Right, like, there would be this sense of, like, I am going to prove them wrong. I am going to show them. I am going to exact punishment on them for their abandonment of me, for their betrayal of me, and for their horrible disbelief. How, like, what else could I possibly have done for them or to show them? But Jesus doesn't have this response at all. In fact, generally, he doesn't even deal with it and he doesn't even bring up their disbelief. He simply offers himself as proof that he is still here, that he is alive, that he, he is well. And actually, he went beyond just offering himself, just offering the evidence. What did he do next? Jesus actually commissioned the very people who betrayed and abandoned him to go with the message of his resurrection to the whole world and to create a community of faith based around faith in him. If I had a bunch of people who had just completely left me in my moment of need, I certainly wouldn't be coming back to them after victory and being like, well, hey, I know you did that back there, but now can you go and take the most important message that ever existed in the history of humankind 
and take it to the rest of the world. I give you that responsibility. I believe in you. And I'm going to tell the Father to send the Holy Spirit to empower you to do it. Go get them, guys. What it says to me is not that Jesus was faking it till he made it. Like, I'm just going to fake it till I make it. I'm mad at these guys, but I'm going to fake it till I make it. No, what it shows to me, right, is that their doubt and their disbelief was not a disqualifier for ministry, for, for them fo- continuing to follow Jesus as much as you and I make it a disqualifier for following Jesus. See, you and I regularly make pockets of disbelief or, or struggle or questions about our faith or about our relationship with Jesus, we regularly make that a disqualifier for all things church-related, all things faith-related. I'm not a very good Christian or I can't really serve over here because I don't believe, I, I'm having a problem believing that or feeling that or doing that or whatever. And we disqualify ourselves because we think that doubt disqualifies us. Where what Jesus does is hands the entire keys to the church to the men who had just hid away in disbelief, betrayed and abandoned him. And who still did not believe it even as Jesus was standing before them. And so our doubt, listen, our belief does not disqualify us, does not disqualify you from Jesus working significantly in your life. Jesus displayed a heart of patience and understanding as their faith was developed and grows. And He does the same for you. He has not changed at all. Finally, like, final point for this morning is this. The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus and all that it entails and offers to you was always the plan and the purpose of God. It wasn't like, oh man, what am I going to do now? Got to figure something out. But Jesus Himself proclaims, right? He says in verse 44, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. Where? In like the New Testament? No, like way back. In the law of Moses. The law of Moses testifies about me, right? The prophets testify about me. The psalmist testifies about me. Then he, it says, he opened their minds in verse 45 so that they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what was written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you to what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have received power from on high. Jesus says, hey, look, this is not a new thing. This was God's plan all of the time. That through me, forgiveness and repentance, forgiveness of sins and repentance would come to all people. And it was that way from the very beginning, from the law of Moses to the prophets of Israel, now to this very moment. It was always the plan. You just never saw it. You refused to see it. You couldn't understand it. 
Okay, Pastor Cameron, who cares? Who cares if that was always the plan? Fair question. It's a fair question, right? I don't know if that I have a significant answer about like the complexity of the fulfillment of Scripture all the way from the law of Moses to the time of Jesus, but what I do know is this, is that, is that God has been working towards your redemption before the shadow of sin ever darkened your soul. Right? Before you had consciousness of everything, Jesus uh, through Jesus, God was putting the pieces together to ensure that you had a pathway of reconciliation with Him. That before anything bad happened, before any darkness fell, before any sense of hopelessness took root in your heart, God was making provision for your salvation through Jesus Christ. God didn't just have an eternal plan. God has a plan right now, too. He did not set his plan in motion and then it stopped in Jesus and now he's hands off in your life. Like, hey, everything I needed to do, um, I did through Jesus in your life. I believe, I, believe that God, I believe that God continues to work through faith in Jesus and the power of, your, of the Holy Spirit to redeem areas of your life that you think are long gone. Way too hopeless, too far gone, too dark, too shady, too broken to ever address. But let me tell you what, not only has God or is God been working on redeeming every aspect of your life, he's been working on it from the very beginning of time. You are not surprising him with what you are feeling. It is not a shock to him what you are experiencing. God doesn't just have an eternal plan in Jesus, but he has one now in your life as well. One that may be, like it was for the disciples, too big for you to see or to comprehend. But he is actively, God is actively working through his Holy Spirit to bring healing wholeness, and reconciliation to the situations in your life that you feel are too hopeless and have long since abandoned any hope for resolving. God is working that out. And he's been working that out. And he's continuing to working that out. And he will not quit. He will not quit. We have said that it's over. Right? It's over. This is just the way it is. This is the way that my life is going to be. It's the way that relationship's going to be. It's the way my family's going to be. It's the way my health's going to be. That's just the way it's going to be. And that's ab- absolutely everything that everyone said when they put Jesus in the tomb on that Friday. Well, that's just the way it is. It's over. He is dead in the grave. That's why they were hiding and in fear. That's why Mary was weeping at the tomb. All hope was lost, Right? Listen, nothing is over until Jesus says it's over. Nothing is over until Jesus says it's over. And it's not over. It's not over. The empty tomb shows us that Jesus has declared nothing over. 
my hope and prayer for you this morning is that you would hear the gentleness, um, the patience, the heart of Jesus in the midst of your doubt, in the midst of your disbelief, in the midst of the situations that you have long since abandoned as hopeless, that you would be able to hear His gentle voice, His patient countenance, His loving presence that walks with you as your faith grows and develops and as His Holy Spirit works to take the scales off your eyes so that you can see that the things that you have long since declared as dead and over, that He is actively working to redeem and to resurrect. That is my prayer for you. Actually, let me, let me pray it over you and um, as, we, as we welcome the worship team uh, back up to this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray in faith. And Lord, we, we express belief. But Lord, we're asking that You would help us where we are having a hard time believing. Maybe believing that uh, You are for us. Maybe we're having a hard time believing that any good can come from this. Maybe we're having a hard time believing um, that You are still working or that You have been working right from the get-go. But Lord, if You can work through the whole, whole timeline of biblical history to bring redemption to even us right now, Lord, we have faith to believe even though it's hard to believe. We have faith to believe that You are working in our situations right now. Lord, help us. Help us in our unbelief and help us to experience and to um, articulate significant belief in Your goodness for us, Lord. Lord, thank You for a place where we can come in honesty where we can come in authenticity and where we can say without any fear, yeah, I'm, I don't really know what I think about that anymore. My belief has been lost or, mis, or, or misplaced. Father, I am confident, we are confident that You will meet us there that You are meeting us there. Lord, that You will show us Your resurrected body. That You will show us that You You are victorious, Lord. Lord, show Yourself to us, please. In Jesus' name, Amen.